It's been said that the ocean is responsible for every second breath we take. You may have heard this before, or maybe, as was the case with me when I first noticed it, it just feels familiar to you. I think I read it first. If I remember correctly, and on reading, it was almost like someone had reminded me of an old slogan from my childhood. Like something from an old TV advert when I was a kid that had suddenly been unlocked in my memory. It sounds almost too catchy to be true. I mean, it also sounds cool, so there's that too. But when you kind of take hold of the phrase, explore and examine, hold it close to you and spend some time with it, you start to realise why it's so effective. It ties in the importance of the ocean with our very survival here on Earth. Literally one of the basic things that keeps us alive. If we didn't appreciate the ocean in the first place, well, there's this thing that might just swing it perhaps. How it helps us to live and breathe and stay alive. I will say this though about the sea, and this applies to you, dear listener, directly, just to give some clarity. I was born about 10 minutes away from Brighton Beach on the south coast of the UK and have been in Margate at the time of recording this for almost five years. Speaking personally, I can say that I genuinely feel a binding connection with the ocean, which I can't fully explain. If you'll permit me to get all poetic for a second, it feels like it goes beyond words. I know I'm not alone in this, as I've been fortunate to meet many people who speak about the ocean in similar ways, like it's a relative, or physical being with mystical powers, or simply an old friend with whom you can sit and be yourself with and be as honest and truthful or as calm and quiet as you wish. But I know too well not to expect the entire living world to share this feeling, or at least experience it in the forefront of their minds. We don't all live a few minutes from the beach, and for some, a trip to the seaside is a complete holiday project. Also, some people are not necessarily sea people either. I've heard from people who live in Margate who never jump in the sea, or have little interest in doing so. Naturally, that's fair enough. It's not for everyone, by any means. And maybe that applies to you, directly. Messages about the sea pertaining to one's survival and health, in that case, might not always resonate with each and every person on the planet. If you're landlocked for miles, the importance of every second breath you take being from the sea might not hit home in the same way as it does with the beachside resident or those fascinated by the blue part of our world. But it doesn't make these messages any less significant, important or true. We all have priorities in all sorts of aspects of life fighting for exposure on a daily basis. But I like to imagine that there's a little time set aside, naturally, for just a little ocean appreciation in all of our minds. And if not the ocean itself than water at the very least. You are listening to the Blue Mind podcast from Haeckels in Margate in London. I invite you to think of this as your auditory escape hatch, sonic safe space, and your world within or outside of a world. A way out or a way in. A journey of discovery or pure, uninterrupted relaxation time. Whatever works best for you. I am your host, Buddy Peace, and mine will be the voice you'll hear narrating and directing throughout. 
In this episode, I invite you to join in on an adventure into the world of marine biology, which takes place in a phenomenal, postcard-perfect corner of the world. Depending on where you are, this will either be a glorious feature-length cruise through uninterrupted waters and views of only the most vivid colour, or a quick little boat trip to our destination, but I'll try and keep you as informed as I can on our journey as to where we are. For now though, let's just have a quick break to reset and I'll meet you back here in a moment. If you're in a place where you can do this safely and without posing risks to yourself or others, just close your eyes for a moment. Picture a world map, but specifically, if mental geography allows, zoom in on the area of the Indian Ocean. Now, we're all friends here, so I'll admit to you that my own geography is not perhaps at the highest level it could be. So for those of you, like me, who share such a disposition, let's triangulate things. Imagine the Indian Ocean as the middle space area of a capital M. Roughly speaking, on the left leg of the M, you have Africa. Over on the right leg there, you have Singapore and Malaysia. Now, in the middle downwards dip of the M, you have India. With this capital M in your head, under this downwards dip where India is, with Sri Lanka just below it, you have the Maldives. The Maldives is an archipelagic country in the Indian subcontinent of Asia. Now I can't guess how much you already know about the Maldives, but one fact that I discovered, which I never knew, is that it's the world's lowest lying country at an average 1.5 meters above sea level. It will probably come as no surprise either that it is objectively gorgeous. We'll get back to this paradise in due course, but now we're perfectly situated in our mind maps Let's meet our very special guest for this episode. Okay, so hi, my name is Amelia Cody. I'm a marine biologist that specialises in coral restoration in the Maldives. Blue Mind family, this is Amelia. Amelia, this is the Blue Mind family. To explain how I was introduced to Amelia and how her appearance on this episode of Blue Mind came to be, let's just quickly go back to that mind map from a minute or two ago. Remember, the capital M and the Indian Ocean and so on. So we've established the Maldives and stuck a pin in that map for now. But if we zoom in further still, we realise that the Maldives isn't just a big island. Amelia will explain everything very soon, but it's a collection of small islands. I guess sort of like a big island that's been tapped lightly with a chisel and shattered, if that helps as a visual. In amongst these smaller pieces lie the Fari Islands. To zoom in once more, I know, a lot of zooming, but stay with me. You will then find Patina Maldives. This is where Amelia works. Actually, I'll pass her the mic to get a nice rounded picture of the place. I mean, Maldives is formed by 20 natural atolls. So they kind of look like from from Google Maps or from Google Earth, like tiny islands, but they're actually like fringing collections of islands. So within one atoll, you can have like around... 100, 200 islands within it. So we're in North Malay Atoll. We are located on the northeast um, side of 
North Mali Atoll. And yeah, I'm, I work on um, Patina, which is a resort here, uh, but we come under the umbrella of the Ferry Islands, which encompasses Patina, Ritz-Carlton, Capella, and also our um, sort of campus island as well. So there's four in total. Patina could be described as a hotel resort experience, but this doesn't even begin to cover it. It's so much more than that. I feel like it's a place where you're simultaneously absorbing as much as you possibly can in the present moment, while also working hard on storing up memories for the time when your stay comes to an end. You know when you're almost experiencing too much to comprehend. I feel like it's along those lines. Have a look on their website, I think you'll see what I mean. Essentially, a fantasy location made real. I'll just read some of the description from their website, which hints at what they're all about. Patina Maldives is a part of the Fari Islands, with two neighbouring islands that share distinctly different energies to form a destination of deep cultural character. Here, socially and environmentally conscious travellers connect through a depth of beauty, creativity and discovery. The evolving spirit of human nature is given stimulus to sustain its momentum in the form of newness, stillness or vital togetherness. Heck also has been working with Patina in creating a range which is unique to the location, while retaining the original Margate echoes which vibrate through everything Heckles produces. It's been designed to be made a stone's throw from Patina to reduce environmental impact, so it's not shipped from here to there, basically, and work in harmony with the environment in which Patina finds its home. That's the rough outline. We'll come back to it, but I'd love for you to hear more from Amelia. Amelia works directly in, on and with the ocean. So how did the adventure start? Okay, so from the age of like seven, I had like an obsession with the ocean and like the underwater world. And I went on holiday with my family when I was 11 and uh, did my first scuba dive. So I did a discover scuba and went underwater and was just absolutely like fascinated by just the whole environment. Like it was just so amazing for me to like have a breathing apparatus that would allow me to be underwater for like more than like five minutes. So from then I did my first dive and then I was just like, this is what I want to do. There was no plan B, it was only this, which put a lot of pressure on me (laughs) throughout school and university and everything but I was like this is the only thing that I want to do and I'm gonna do it whether it's gonna kill me or not so yeah I started researching and becoming really interested in different uh, organizations that do work both I started in the UK and then I went further afield and started looking into so sharks were a big thing I was like that weird kid at school that just like was obsessed with sharks and everyone used to like be like she's so she's so weird (laughs) like why (laughs) It's almost a tale as old as time, isn't it? The things we gravitate towards at those early ages which slowly envelop us and almost take control, steering us day to day towards more and more of that thing we love. Sometimes we shed everything and take a complete change in course, surprising everyone who expected us to stay on the path. But sometimes we remain loyal and dedicated and really fall in love with it, go in on it. From the continued journey... It seems like Amelia was definitely the latter, dedicated and on a constantly revealing path, which always created space for learning and discovery. It just stuck with me. Like people used to call me like a marine girl at school. So I was I was that person that just loved, loved the ocean, 
wanted to be in the water all the time like still to this day like there's not many things like if I were on a boat and there would be stuff in the water like sharks whales whatever I'd be the first to like want to get into the water and I don't think I'd ever like that'll ever like leave me it's just part of me now and yeah since I started diving got my qualifications and then went to uni did all of that and then after uni I mean uni was really tough in parts but I did my undergrad dissertation out in the Bahamas I was lucky enough to be selected to do like an overseas research program so I worked on the metabolic costs of capture of juvenile lemon sharks out in the Bahamas for like eight weeks which was dreamy um but also really really hard um I politely interrupted Amelia at this point as I heard lemon sharks, but not the part before. I just wanted to make sure everything was recorded in case we missed anything. So for anyone who missed the study, here we go. Take two. Measuring the metabolic costs of capture of juvenile lemon sharks. So basically in like layman's terms, it, we were chasing baby lemon sharks in a tank until they became exhausted and then we'd record their respirometer and respiration and their metabolic sort of functions post exhaustion which was really really cool uh, to do and to be able to um, be up close with the sharks so we did that for eight weeks and then I came back wrote up my thesis and then finished my final year and with that experience abroad I knew that I would never well, never say never, but I didn't want to go into a job where I would be sat on a computer, like looking at spreadsheets. Um, I wanted to be out in the ocean doing the physical data collection or research or whatever that may be. And then I became very, very passionate and saddened by the whole coral bleaching events that have been apparent um, in the recent years. And then that's when I knew that I wanted to do something with coral. I've worked with different types of different species of shark. I've done some work with manta rays. I've done some work with whale sharks. But yeah, right now, I'd say I specialize and know the most about sort of coral and coral restoration. So we have the early days, the origin story and a touch of the present. But as Amelia stated in her intro, she specializes in coral restoration. I was curious to know how that connection to coral was made. And what was the appeal of coral in particular in a whole underwater world of life forms? Okay, so I think I'd probably say, I'm trying to think when the first time that I dived on a, probably in Bahamas or in the Caribbean, I dived on reefs with amazing coral. And I was in the first, for the first time around 2018, so that was just after the first, well, one of the major bleaching events we had in 2016, 2017. And to like see firsthand, to like dive reefs where you can see physically the expanse and the scale of an ecosystem and how it's just been completely degraded and is in a state where it's not going to recover was so sad. Sometimes it's like some reefs can be sort of termed like graveyards because the physical like skeletons of the coral are still there and still present but they're just dead and they're completely white or they're like gray um depending on how uh, bleached they are and when i saw this firsthand like whilst diving it was just so heartbreaking for me to witness and to see going back to reefs that i've been to post the second bleaching event that we had 
when you can see that difference, it's just really, really sad and something that you want to be a part of, of the recovery and the restoration. Because the thing about coral is it's so, so important. It's like the most important part of an ecosystem. So with coral reefs, if you don't have the reef, you won't have the fish. And if you don't have the fish, then you won't have the large pelagic like sharks. And it just everything falls down like the not food chain but like the food web that's just like the foundation of especially Maldives like Maldives is known for these amazing coral reefs and diving and snorkeling and you see across like social media the just idyllic paradise and it is still here in parts but because of both climate change and human-induced factors that it's slowly, slowly becoming less and less. So for me, I think if I were to specialise in, in, say, a specific species of, of fish or shark, it would always fall down to the fact that there's something wrong with their ecosystem. It's, it's where they're living, usually, and that's what falls into the reef ecosystem. Amelia mentioned a coral bleaching event and how those events can happen even some of the causes that can really speed it up. It certainly sounds like a moment of trauma for a life form, which involves such a dramatic visual component. Now, I'll just mention something here for the sake of honesty, and just in case any of you listening might have had the same thought. I remember when I was a kid, seeing a TV programme where the main character's hair turned white through a sudden shock. This was the 80s, and probably primetime TV, so I can't verify the quality or level of humour of what I was watching. Chances are it could have been one of those time-filler shows that back then you watched because, well, that's what was on. The same thing actually happens to a character in the amazing series Twin Peaks 2, but I would only ever refer to that show in the most glowing terms, I assure you. But I've never forgotten the TV show I was talking about. I've also never looked it up to see if it's actually a real thing that can happen. It turns out it can happen, and the name given to the condition, which I didn't know until now, is Marie Antoinette Syndrome, in reference to, and I quote, newatlas.com, an oft-told but most likely apocryphal story of the ill-fated French queen's hair turning white overnight after being captured during the revolution. I'm sure we could all agree that the coral bleaching events are of greater significance to the planet in general, but I wonder to myself if there's some kind of analogue there. Amelia explains what happens to coral when this situation occurs. The causes of coral bleaching, the main cause is rising sea surface temperatures. So when you have an increase in temperature, it doesn't need to be a lot. It can be sort of like one to two degrees for a prolonged period of time. This is when coral become extremely stressed and they basically eject their zooxanthellae. So I will ever so quickly poke my head in to let you know what that word is. Zoazanthalae. Noun. Zoazanthalae. It's not a word I've ever encountered before, so I thought, if you're thinking the same thing, I'd just step in to explain. Back to Amelia. They basically eject their zoazanthalae, so the, the living part of the organism, they eject, and that then loses the colour of the coral. When that happens, it goes completely white, and that's what's the term when it's bleached. Um, and then after a longer period of time, it just completely dies. The main cause is the temperature. There can be sort of other impacts relating to ocean acidification, which is all linked to the same thing of like climate change. 
um, and global warming. And with Maldives, most of the reefs are technically quite shallow. And obviously, the more shallow you are, the impacts of temperature rise are going to be more prevalent. So Maldives has been hit really, really hard. And the sad thing is that coral takes so, so little time to bleach and to degrade. However, like to recover and restore it, it takes very, very long time. So coral, corals are a very slow growing organism. Some species can grow sort of two to three centimeters per year. So once a complete reef is wiped out, it takes like decades for it to be completely restored. The actual skeleton of coral, that won't restore, but then new seedlings and fragmentation like naturally will occur. And also through like spawnings, the new corals will use the dead skeletons as structures in which to attach onto and then grow from there. Essentially, that's one of the worst case scenarios for coral. The worst is for it to completely die, of course, but this is one of the most shocking outcomes as it's such a visual surprise to see such vibrant life completely change like that. It's full on. This feels like a perfect opportunity to take a little pause, an intermission of sorts, which I like to call the thought break. A chance to let all that you've heard so far melt in and to meditate on it all for a minute or two while gentle sounds fade in and fade out. I know that with a lot of podcasts, there is usually wall-to-wall talking and information being fired at you throughout. This is a wonderful thing, of course, but sometimes it's nice to have a moment to absorb and reflect a little bit. So here is a chance to do just that, guilt-free. I welcome you back into everything soon, but for now, enjoy the calm. Catch you back here shortly. Welcome back. I hope that was a nice little break. How did you get on? You know what? Don't worry about answering that. That's for you. So let's get back on the path with our guest Amelia, who works at Patina Maldives in the area of coral restoration. Before the break, we were hearing about the positives and the operations being undertaken to help the coral out. But I really want to get to the actual facts and the work of it all, the day-to-day I'm always fascinated about what a day looks like for people. The wake up, the morning routine, the hour to hour decisions. I mean, we don't get into the literal minute by minute accounts, don't worry. I don't mean as microscopic as that, but more what holds a day together. I began by checking in with Amelia about the where and what of the work she finds herself involved in now. (laughs) So I 
am working on a large-scale restoration program here out in the Maldives, which encompasses the Ferry Island, which basically includes four different islands. The restoration program aims to plant between eight and 10,000 frames to help restore the reef, the outer lagoon. So a little bit of background on the Ferry Islands. These islands were artificially made. So the only natural like ecosystem and habitat was like the lagoon, so like underneath the water. So the four islands are artificially made um, and there are a lot of islands like this in Maldives. Quite a lot of resorts now are basically artificially made. So this is basically the process of bringing sand and a big construction team to build islands in order for new resorts to be made. Yeah, honestly, it's crazy. Like we have we have one, like the fourth one being built uh, as we speak and we have like weekly ships that come in, like huge like ferry tankers that come in with like trees on that are going to be planted. It's so surreal to see like full-blown trees here. This is something I hadn't thought of before, how some of the resorts and spots around the islands happen. I think in my mind, in a lapse of logic, I literally thought they sprang up out of the ocean, honestly. When you see structures in the context of a city, for instance, I think your mind just makes certain observations like, well, the material is brought in on a truck, on a road from a factory somewhere, and it's kind of a quick assumption. But when you see places on remote islands without the context of roads and trucks and so on, I think that's partially why I didn't make the leap. Of course it has to be brought in on boats. Anyway, Amelia breaks it down further, but also the day-to-day checklist which I'm so intrigued by. Personally, I don't know any marine biologists, and so I've never known what happens in those 24 hours. After some island detail, let's hear all about it. So, the island's all man-made. Basically, the, the, in the construction of my resort, of Patina, they did take into account the more environmental impacts. So, the construction wasn't as bad as I had expected and I have witnessed before in previous properties. But still, there's always going to be some sort of degradation when you're constructing and doing a large-scale construction, like putting water villas, putting, you know, like a huge, uh, basically like a a hotel um, in the middle of the ocean. So my day-to-day at the moment, I mean, I'm just looking at my, um, my timetable now. So it's basically split between the coral restoration program. So that includes me planting frames, collecting coral fragments, from nearby um, reefs, maintenance of the frames, so cleaning the frames, checking for predation, checking to see whether frames need to be moved depending on the temperature of the water. And then I have interactive activities that I do both with guests and staff on islands. So we have beach cleans, reef cleans. We have marine talks that I give to guests. I also have like an interactive day with all the children on our resort where I introduce them to the underwater world. We do marine themed activities. I give a presentation about turtles. So that's, yeah, that's a really, really nice day. Yeah, Marine Tuesdays are really great. I um, I really love getting um, involved with the, the kids club we have here, Footprints. And we've had some really, really like keen children that that are obsessed with me and just want to be with me all the time so yeah it's been really really nice to be able to like some some of the children we have here they've never 
been to somewhere like this so it's really nice to get them in the water, snorkel with them um, and introduce them to the underwater world like I was introduced to. Um, so yeah, my, my week is usually split between more scientific research like coral work and also being interactive and having guest activities that I can be a part of, which is really, really nice to have sort of a mix of both. Being a part of a child's education when it comes to the sea is amazing. Even as an adult, I still feel like I'm learning about it on a pretty much daily basis, whether it's actual scientific facts or things about his personality and mood swings. It truly feels like a natural force and a living being at once. Does Amelia see sparks in the younger generation when it comes to ocean education in real time in front of her? Yeah, for sure. A couple of weeks back, I had a really adorable uh, little girl from Australia and she came with her parents and it was their first time in Maldives. And she actually did a discover scuba like I did when I was her age. Um, and she just loved it so much. She was with me all the time. She was like my little mini me for the two weeks that she was here. She would like come to me with her book of all of her fish that she'd seen. And we'd do like a mini log book. And, and it was honestly, it was so lovely to to have that interaction with her and really like introduce her to like that there is a career in this if you want to do this you can like it, it you don't just have to be like obsessed with the ocean and just have it as a hobby you can actually make it into a real job I do remember like like my dive buddy I had when I was younger and like the diving that we did together and like how he was so confident in the water was just like so inspiring to me being super young so I can fully relate to that so nice I love that. Let's think back to the very start of the podcast. I mentioned about the ocean being in your surroundings and how this changes your perception of it and the health and welfare of it in general. What Amelia says next is a perfect stepping stone to my following question. So what does she think about this? I think a lot of coral restoration and rest, like sustainable management of oceans should have been done a long time ago. And I think one of the main reasons why it hasn't been so pushed is because people physically can't see what's going on unless they're in the water. It's making that connection with people that are on land to actually like realising the importance of the ocean and how, how it's so fast it's changing and declining. When I'm able, I jump at the opportunity to be able to introduce that sort of side of things and get people thinking about that and being like exposed to that information firsthand. Let's circle back then to the work Amelia's doing to help restore coral reefs out in the Maldives. I just wanted to know so much more about it all as I have no idea how it happens. So hopefully this is something that probably came to mind for you too. Oh, and by the way, I picked up the phrase circle back from listening to a lot of American podcasts. You might also hear me say unpack at some point too. We'll see. Here's Amelia. Okay, so a frame, there's a few different types of frames that can be used with coral restoration. So we use two types. We use um, line nurseries and then just frame nurseries. So frames are, that's, it's actually a really hard question. How do you describe them? I'll start with what they're made out of because I know that. So they're made out of like PVC, like metal pipe and they're welded together in sort of the shape of like a cone and they have like six sides. So what is that? Like a, is it hexagon? Yeah. And has like gradual frets on it. So there's different layers to the frame. So it's not just 
the horizontal like lines, they also have like vertical ones as well. And basically this structure um, is then coated with like cement and sand to create sort of like a rough texture. This is done because corals basically um, attach to, to this sort of texture better than just the, the metal um, and also prevents it from rusting under the water. Yeah, so they're sort of frames and basically what happens is you get a coral fragment. So a coral fragment is basically a tiny piece of coral, kind of like what you do with plants and trees. So when you like take a branch off a tree, then you take a, a cutting from like a colony of coral and then that piece is called a fragment. And then you take that fragment and you attach it onto the frame. So with a, like a cable tie, you usually attach them onto the frames you tighten them as tight as they can go and with the largest surface area of the coral like um, in contact with the frame and then you deploy the frames into the water. You usually go back and visit the frame around three or four days um, after deployment because sometimes when the cable ties get into the water they loosen a little bit especially if the, there's current or any sort of movement. So you go back, you tighten the frames and then you remove the excess cable tie and then you just wait. So usually takes between three to four weeks for secretion to occur, depending on what species and if they um, acclimatize well to the artificial structure of the frame. And then they usually secrete and then also grow freely onto the frame. Then you have line frames or line nurseries. So line frames are basically like a u-shaped structure but turned upside down so like a little n and you hammer that into the water and then basically attach a piece of like line or rope to both ends so you can have them like 10 meters long 20 meters long whatever you want and then you have these two dome shaped structures and then with a line in between that like is raised off the seafloor so they're like floating and with these ones the fragments Basically, you take the fragment. It's, it's a nicer way of doing basically coral lines because you don't need any like artificial um, material like cable ties. So you basically untwine the rope that you have and then you just fix the, the fragment into the rope and then twine it back up. So there's no extra material. Yeah. So this is quite a good way and quite a well um, used way in like most of restoration programs like worldwide. They use line nurseries a lot. And it's a lot freer, um, it's more easy to sort of move when the fragments are at a stage where you can move them back onto the reef. So yeah, we, at the moment we have frames, we're basically establishing some line nurseries under our water villas at Patina. So that's a new sort of like mini project that we're going to be doing. So every guest um, has their sort of own like nursery that they can tend to and look after whilst they stay with us. Once they're deployed, they stay in the ocean, albeit please not let the current like take them away because we've had that done happen before. Um, so yeah, when we put them in, we secure a site that we hope will house them for a prolonged period of time because the structure of them basically allows the coral to be able to grow freely and upwards. So it's basically the layering of the different pieces of metal allows all of like the fragments to be able to have enough sunlight and enough space to be able to grow and then form its own, we call them like bommies, like a, a reef bommie, which would be like a small outcrop where just corals present. 
So not like a full reef, but when you have obviously multiple frames, it can then intertwine and then become a full reef system. So yeah, they're, they're always in the water. We don't take them out. So can we call Amelia an ocean doctor? <laughs> I like that term. I sometimes need to remember and remind myself of that because it can get day to day. You can sort of think, I am doing this work, but it's like a drop in the ocean, pardon the pun, to compare to like the, the expanse of like the world's reef ecosystems. But you, like, I have to think like I'm doing something every day that's helping the ocean, like whether it be big or small, I'm like actively participating in that and that's all that you can do. So, What else is so cool about the protection of coral is that there's a whole network of people dedicated to it. Honestly, the more I speak to people on this podcast, the more I realise how linked the network of environmentally minded and proactive heroes is. I know this sounds naive, but really, so many people are ignited and ready to go in all areas of global restoration. And it's a beautiful thing to know. Yeah, it's a huge um, network of people. So not even just in the Maldives, like everywhere in Hawaii, French Polynesia, Caribbean, Australia, all around the tropics, there is continuous like, restoration work being done, which is really, really great. And there's new techniques that are coming to the forefront of studies and research, which we're really excited about. But it's, yeah... It's just a slow process, but yeah, there are lots of people that are really, really trying so hard to to restore one of the world's most natural and most amazing um, ecosystems. And one ecosystem that people aren't aware of. So we've we've heard of like you know how how much rainforests and throughout the Amazon that do so much carbon sequestration and things like that. But the ocean also does so much that we also take for granted. Like every second breath we breathe is because of the ocean. If we didn't have the ocean, we'd not be on the planet. So it's hugely important, I think, and has been overlooked, but we're starting to have lots of management strategies put in place now worldwide where sustainable management or like uh, marine protected areas are being increased, which is really, really good to see. Sometimes on this podcast, I do notice myself becoming more and more positive and open-minded about the future of our planet. I don't tend to spend too long in negative places when pondering it all. At least I try not to. But in talking to people like Amelia and a couple of episodes ago, marine biologist Inca Creswell and the wonderful photographer and swimmer Nadia Huggins. I mean, well, every guest on here. I can't help but feel optimistic about where we're at. I don't mean I'm sitting back and doing nothing while everyone else puts in the hard work and actually does the things. I don't mean that. But more like the spirit of it all. It's addictive, and there's a feeling of a torch being passed along. I have no way of knowing who, out of everyone listening right now, might feel inspired to jump in and do what Amelia's doing, or look into another area of coastal protection, or whatever it might be. But it's so cool to think that could be something that can happen. We'll see, I guess. With this in mind, and with time for a couple more minutes with Amelia, where would she say we are right now with the ocean? Oh, that's a big question. Um... (laughs) (laughs) okay um for me it's a challenging question because to look large scale we're we're sort of in control and we're also out of control of the state of the oceans and the future of the oceans in terms of like me and my little bubble not to be a downer but 2022 is set to be on record the warmest ocean temperatures so the outlook is not looking great but we have to stay positive and we have to be 
proactive in our approach. If we just sit here, obviously it's just going to get worse and worse. So we have to try our best to do what we can and to try and conserve and manage um, the ecosystems as best we can. So um, something that I haven't touched upon um, thus far so we work in partnership with Olive Ridley Project, which is a organisation that's based in the Maldives that the basic aim is to rescue and recover sea turtles. So we have a lot of entanglements in ghost nets and we get a lot of material and ghost net like conglomerates that come from the north, from like Sri Lanka and from India that severely impact the turtle populations here in Maldives. And that's not just here, it's everywhere. Also, we have still, uh, to this day, um, shark finning and illegal fishing that's going on in the world um, every single day that's not being managed and legislated and, and, and people aren't being brought to justice because of the actions that they're taking. But, you know, there's, there's always going to be a lot of problems um, when you're talking about a large-scale thing like the ocean and the, the conservation of our oceans. So in terms of me and my, my bubble, I think that a lot of marine biologists are, I'd like to say, are sort of like the glasses half full type of people. And they are proactive and want to feel encouraged by the work they do. But our bases are like science at the end of the day. And we're, although we can sugarcoat things and say that everything's fine, it's, it's, it's not. It's, um, it's not looking great. And I think management should have been happening on a global scale quite a long time ago. But we are where we are and we have to deal with those consequences now. And I think there are more and more activists and um, environmental spearheads that are really, really pushing for ocean conservation and ocean management and the sustainable efforts of those things. So yeah, the, the future can be bright if we continue with the pace that we're going and even sort of increase that pace and increase that momentum um, and all work together. And, you know, on a local scale, that's more doable than a, than a wider scale. But you have to try. Otherwise, you know, what's, what's the point? Like, I've always had a passion for the oceans and I want to have, you know, my grandchildren be able to see the oceans that I've been able to dive in. It's about sustaining the ecosystems now for future generations and inspiring and creating awareness for, you know, the new scientists that are up and coming that are interested and, and want to preserve that environment. So it's a hard one. In case you missed the episode, Nadia Huggins is a sea swimmer out in the Grenadines in St Vincent, who takes these unbelievably fresh sea-situated photos. You have to see them if you haven't already. I've said it before, but these photos will make you feel like you're literally up to your neck in the sea. It's amazing. I asked Nadia all those episodes ago if she had a message for the ocean. I would probably tell it to go easy <laughs> on everyone. <laughs> I also asked underwater filmmaker and fellow marine biologist Inca Cresswell the same thing. I say thank you for endless inspiration. Continue to outlive everything that we do and to be your completely uncontrollable self because that's the part of your beauty. So I would be remiss in not asking Amelia Cody of Patina if she had a message for the ocean. Spoiler alert, she does. But as a special treat for the Blue Mind podcast family, she also has a secret to share. Okay, I'm going to open up now. And I'm going to tell you something that I've not told anyone ever before. Okay, are you ready for this? 
<laughs> so whenever I go to the ocean, whether it be for like a snorkel or diving, actually normally it's just when I'm snorkeling. So when I'm like walking into the ocean, I always speak to her. Like I always say whatever's on my mind or like I always have like a, obviously one-sided, but I always have, I feel like I have a conversation with the ocean and like say that I'm here and that I'm like ready to do whatever I'm supposed to be doing. But I would just have so much gratitude and respect and admiration for the huge like force um, of nature that she is. Yeah, I really like that question. I would have to like sit and really think about a response that would be like better than what I've just said, but I feel like my my closest friends will understand, but a lot of people will be like, what the hell? But yeah, it's it's such a big part of my life and it's such a huge expanse. Like it's unmeasurable. Like I could be on a boat and just be out in the ocean for such a prolonged period of time and not be bored with just watching, just being immersed in it. That's a very good question. I think I, I journal a lot, so I might actually steal that question from you and write a, write a response. I feel like that's going to be my next project. <laughs> I'm going to take it. Amelia, you are quite welcome. This will surely require a part two in that case, as we will need to hear what comes up from that. Let's wait and find out. You can visit Patina online at patinahotels.com. You can follow Amelia on Instagram by finding at ameliacody23. All links will be provided in the show information. Thank you so much, Amelia. It's been really lovely. We're about to enter the meditation area of the podcast, to which you are cordially and officially invited. This features a unique meditation written by Heckles House therapist and best friend of the podcast, Lottie. Ahead of that though, let's give our minds a little more luxury time by way of a second thought break. Layers of sound in which your mind can roam freely. And after that, even more pure indulgence for you to enjoy. Catch you back here shortly. Welcome back in. We have one more stop to make in our blue mind bubble, which will give you a proper chance to really take a wander outside of the confines of the surroundings of your head, or maybe go even further inside. Whatever your perspective, you're most welcome. And I can't wait to reintroduce our good friend Lottie into the Blue Mind podcast. Lottie is a professional therapist in Heckel's house who guests on each episode whenever possible to deliver a uniquely crafted meditation for you unique to each episode, written and voiced by Lottie. I'll pass over to her for now, and I absolutely invite you to find somewhere comfortable, and perhaps horizontal, where you can break off a piece of the day for yourself. I'll see you back here afterwards for the Blue Mind Bubble farewell, but before that, dear listener, here, once more, is Lottie. 
Hi, I'm Lottie. Thanks for joining me for this guided meditation. For this episode, the theme is darkness. So a lot of the time we get used to darkness having negative connotations like fear or evil. And we can forget how vital the dark is. Darkness and light are of equal importance and you can't have one without the other. All life begins and develops in the dark. Just think of the time that we all spend in the womb or think of a seed germinating deep within the earth. And in creation myths from many ancient civilizations all across the world, the story of life begins with darkness everywhere before the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon or the stars. Every year as we head into winter, the darkness takes over and plants will die and creatures retreat into the darkness and so many signs of life and nature just disappear and surrender to the inevitable without resistance. But this death-like state is only an illusion because on a deeper level there is growth and transformation taking place which will always bring about the rebirth of nature in the spring. So now if you feel comfortable to do so, we're going to take some deep breaths and we're going to breathe in for the count of five and then hold for a sec and then exhale for the count of seven. So breathe in, two, three, four. Five and hold for a sec and then exhale. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and take another breath in. Two, three, four, five, and hold it for a sec and then breathe out. Two, three, four, five. Six, seven, and then take one more deep breath in. Two, three, four, five, and then exhale now. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and just. Feel the weight of your body on whichever surface you're sitting or lying down on and just allow your muscles to relax knowing that you are supported and that you can let go. And now with your eyes closed just imagine a big tree with its roots which run deep and wide and it stands tall and this tree is ready to let go of its leaves and the wind's blowing through its branches and it's like it's urging those branches to let go of their leaves. And now turn towards that sacred darkness within yourself and just ask yourself, what do you need to let go of to help you grow into your full power and potential? What do you need to let go of? 
to help you grow into your full power and potential. The darkness is inevitable and necessary for this mysterious process of rebirth to take place within you, just like it does within the tree, letting go of its leaves before they grow again. And now, meditate for as long as you like. And then whenever you're ready to come back, then just take some more deep breaths and then gently open your eyes. The Blue Mind Podcast was written, produced, arranged and scored by me, Buddy Peace. Blue Mind is the name of an excellent and mind-opening book by Wallace J. Nichols, which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of all things sea-related. Thank you so much to Wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast. The Blue Mind podcast is produced for Heckles, who you can find online at heckles.co.uk, which is spelt H-A-E-C-K-E-L-S, or physically at two locations, 18 Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido, and 16 Broadway Market in London. You can follow Heckles on Instagram over on at Heckles for product updates, ocean-based positivity, and innovations from all over the world. There are regular posts and stories, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. So much for you to get lost in. We're also on Spotify, where you'll find around 100 curated playlists. Just do a quick search for Heckles on Spotify you'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world, compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance. Each is completely unique and kind of like an escape button if you need it. Most importantly of all though, I would like to thank you for listening and for being a part of this podcast. As a listener, you are what makes this thing come alive and if you're enjoying it, an incredible gesture of support would be to recommend and share it with a friend or anyone you feel would get something from it. It's a thrill that you're here and listening to the end. Thank you. Let's catch up soon.